give me? What a week. Congrats on the newborn baby, Pastor Wood. Maybe if there's a next one, it'll be named what his session recommended. <laughs> little R.T. Wood. No, seriously, it's funny. I, I, was, um, I went to that, that Good Friday service Friday night, and um, I thought I'd practice my sermon. My wife, Cedro. I was a little distracted. I was driving, and I wasn't able to look up the actual sermon, but anyway, I got through it, and she gave me some good feedback, as always, but she also said, good thing Pastor Wood's baby didn't come on Saturday night, so anyway, I went back to the drawing board and, and reworked stuff, so we should be good to go. Our text today is from Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14 and 15. Two verses. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Your typical Easter sermon rightfully emphasizes resurrection of life. We're going to diverge a little from the norm and talk about destruction and death. But don't worry, it's, it's, a, it's a joyous destruction. The destruction is that of the devil. And the death involved is the, uh, the cause of that destruction, but also has to do with the result from that destruction. Let me say that again. The destruction that we're speaking of is that of the devil, and the death that we're going to speak of relate to both the cause and the effect of that destruction. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, waking us up on this beautiful Easter morning, and as we celebrate your life, your death, and your life again, we, we want to come to you with open hearts and minds. I pray that your word would go through uh, despite me. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you have the notes, um, they were in back, but the verse should be in front of you. So we're going to work through those verses in three parts. Uh, your first part uh, speaks about, uh, I'll read it. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, uh, likewise, partook of the same things. Uh, first, let me give you a bit of a context. Um, the immediate context of these verses is God making a family. If you go back in Hebrews 2, um, we're talking about sons and daughters, about the world to come being subject to not only Christ, but to his, his children. Uh, Jesus is the quintessential child, the perfect one, the prototype. And he was the one that, that acted so that God could have lots of children. Okay, that's kind of where we are. Now, according to this verse that we're looking at today, uh, these children of God are human. They share in the humanity. They laugh, they cry, they eat, they, they uh, what else do people do? Breathe, sleep, talk. God is making his family of people, flesh and blood, not angels, 
not other spiritual beings, people. They are sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. Then we have the phrase, Jesus partook. And since it's Easter, I thought it'd be fitting that I brought out some Easter candy, and I partook of some candy. And this is biblical, by the way. Not sure where you're laughing at. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about partaking of the bread and wine. So, anyway. Good. Jesus partook of humanity. He was something else. In fact, we see it in Hebrews 1, where it talks about he's, being, he's above the angels, and he's, he's the glory of God. Like nine things, just a, a big praise towards who Jesus is. So he's something else, and he's partaking of humanity. I'm not saying he's eating it, don't get me wrong. The analogy falls through a little bit, but he's, he's taking something else on himself. This family is the incarnation. Um, he was something else entirely, but he took on humanity. He was God, and he became human. At this point, you might think of a couple of the verses that speak along these same lines. And I'll read these to you. If you have a Bible, you can go look at them. First one's in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word, which is Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Another one, Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality a thing to be grasped. Um, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Now the one I have is Romans 8, verse 3. It says, for what God has done... For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son, born in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. And the final one I pulled for you is Galatians 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a human, of a woman, sorry, born under the law. So I think all these verses are, are clear that God is taking on flesh. Son of God taking on flesh. So my question is, why did God have to become a man? Well, how long do you have? Uh, there are actually quite a few reasons. In fact, the book of Hebrews uh, deals with that question a lot. Um, but this is Sunday morning service. I plan to be done in half an hour. Or less. And so we'll stick with the two reasons that are in the text directly. Is that all right? Reason number one is that he would cause the destruction of the devil. And the, the verse, again, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The devil loves death. He loves everything about death. He has always tried to get people to die. As far back as the garden, when the anti-devil gave Adam and Eve life eternal, the devil wanted them to die. That was his goal. So imagine his evil joy, the smirk on his face when those two disobeyed God's commands. Because he knew that would lead to death. And it did. Right? So he was happy with that. But what he did not like was that he got cursed in the process. Right? Specifically, he was cursed with Eve's descendant uh, being the ultimate victor over him. In fact, let me read Genesis 3. Verse 15, it says, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And this is what we're seeing here in our text. The devil delivered a blow to Jesus, right? He probably thought he had won, but Jesus got the last word came back from the dead three, three days later to defeat your death. All right, quiz for you. You guys remember this? Why, you fools? Anyone? What is that? Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, right? They're running through. Gandalf and his crew are running through the mines of Moria. This big, ugly, scary creature called a Balrog, right? Is chasing them. And the crew crosses the bridge, and Gandalf stays on the bridge. He says, you shall not pass. And they have a fight, and the bridge breaks, and Balrog falls down. And we're watching the movie, and we're like, yes. But then all of a sudden, Balrog kind of pulls Gandalf down with him with his, with his fire whip. And Gandalf's hanging from the ledge. And he says, fly, you fools. He tells his friends to leave. And so get this, uh, Gandalf and the Balrog start falling. Seems like forever. Seems like an abyss. Takes about a minute on the screen, which as a math teacher I figured out was about two miles. They're falling for about two miles. <laughs> so twice the height, anyway, side point. Um, but after this battle, you know, Balrog ends up dying, but actually Gandalf ends up dying as well. He comes out in the next movie. Um, and this is kind of like the evil bruising his heel. This is like, is the metaphor, I think, for evil thinking they had won, thinking they had taken down this, this great warrior for the good guy. But then imagine the joy from Gandalf's crew one movie later, what is that, one year later, when Gandalf comes back, kind of transformed, and he leads them to a very impossible victory at a big old battle. It's a metaphor for the, for the Satan bruising his heel, but then the, the, the good guy coming around and crushing the head of the bad guy. So hopefully you've, you've seen the movie. If not, you're probably thinking I'm a bit crazy, but it's all right. But wait a second. I thought Jesus was going to destroy the devil in the last days in a final battle. You read in Revelation 20, 
right? Devil being cast in the lake of fire. So which is it? Did, did Jesus destroy the devil with his death and resurrection, or will he destroy the, the devil at some later date? Uh, the answer is yes. This is one, let me explain this. This is one of those areas where it's kind of a already and not yet thing in the Bible, and you get this in a lot of places. We, we are saved, but we're not yet, you know, fully glorified in heaven. We're not totally saved, right? I mean, we're saved and sealed, but we haven't, we're not with heaven, uh, with Jesus in heaven yet. But so in one sense, the devil has been destroyed, but in another sense, he has yet to be destroyed. Let me explain that a little more. The word destroy in this text, elsewhere in the Bible, is translated as bring to nothing, render powerless, or bring to an end. There's another way to look at it. Colossians 2, I think it's verse 15, says this. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now we get a little different, but I think more helpful picture about what's going on. Jesus shamed him. He took away his power. He made a spectacle of him. The devil still exists, be sure about that. But in one sense, Jesus destroyed him through his death and resurrection. And yes, he will defeat him one day. Rest in that. Hope in that. I want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I forgot to write this one down. I want to read the text that was uh, we sung about, and I think Ronnie prayed about it as well. Paul says, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. For when the perishable will put on the imperishable, and the mortal will put on immortality, then will come about, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A cool verse. Lastly, on this point, I would be remiss if I did not talk about how the devil is destroyed. It's pretty clear in the text. If you look up top, or in, the, in the Bible it says um, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death. That is the devil. It's pretty clear it was Jesus' death that destroyed the devil. Additionally, I'd say that Jesus' death and his, and his resurrection are kind of two sides of the same coin. It's a package deal. You can't have one without the other, right? And this is the good news. This is what Christians refer to as the gospel. You have someone who lived a perfect life, who was unjustly sentenced to death, but through his death, he withstood the, but, the brunt of God's punishment 
for sin, once for all time, so that you and I don't have to be punished for our sin. It takes repentance, it takes faith. He was substituted as a sacrificial lamb, basically. And reason number two. Finally in our text, this is reason number two of um, why God became man. God's children are set free. Let me read the whole text again, and you can see it. It says, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and, this is what we're going to talk about, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you are a child of God, rejoice. If you are a brother, a sister of Jesus, rejoice. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are set free. Free to love, free to live, free to radically forgive. Free from death, free from sin, free from hell's dominion. That's for you, Pastor Brian. A little rhyme there. Yes, family, we have freedom in many areas, but in Hebrews 2, we've been delivered and set free from the fear of death, which is one of the devil's powers of death. We read about the, the one who is the power of death, the devil. But remember, Jesus destroyed him. So I'm wondering to myself, what is the power of death? What are these things? And we'll talk about this, and we'll kind of uh, close out our time today. But first, let me talk about what the power of death is not. The devil does not have the power to kill you. God is sovereign over life, but also death. For example, Hebrews 9 says, It is appointed for man to die once. It is appointed for man and woman to die once. But who appoints it? Does the devil? No, I don't think so. What about spiritually? Can the devil kill you spiritually? I mean, after all, you have 1 Peter chapter 5 saying the, the devil crossed around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And like I said before, the devil loves to tempt. He loves death. He wants all people to die. And to do so, he tempts you. Tempts you. I also want you to consider that when it comes to uh, determining the fate of your soul, Consider this. We are all born into sin. That is who we are. It's in our DNA. We're sin because we sin because we're human. Sin produces separation from God, which we would call death, spiritual death. So sin kills spiritually. Well, why do we sin? Let me look at James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That sin in our own hearts is the thing that kills us. It is safe to say the devil cannot kill you spiritually or physically. He tempts you. Again, don't get me wrong. He's coming after you. He can't kill you. So I'm wondering what does 
the text mean when it says the one who has the power of death, that is the devil? And the first thing, the, the point that it says specifically is that uh, there's a fear of death that bonds us to lifelong slavery. And um, actually, I'm sorry, I'll do that in point two. I did want to talk about this one first. Power of death, point number one. And it's on your notes if you want it. The devil says, this, this is all there is. He tries to convince you that death is no big deal. You'll just cease to be. I just read a book um, called Thomas Young's War. It's about a soldier went to Iraq. He got shot over there, came back paralyzed. And it's telling about his, it's his story, pretty much. And as he deteriorates in health, he says this. Quote, this is him talking, not me. I know that when death happens, I won't feel anything. I mean, if the soul exists, and I stay alive in some heavenly realm or hell, then I'll take my lumps. But I believe what I believe, and I just think of it as a forever nap. And this, this is a deception, a power of death that the devil holds. He tries to trick people, he tries to trick us into believing that there's nothing beyond this life. Uh, it kind of leads to, to nihilism or the absence of meaning in life, right? Someone once said, a long time ago, they said the loveliest trick of the devil is to persuade people that he does not exist. But you, family, know that this viewpoint is, is hopeless. To live for around 78 years, Lord willing, with a blueprint of truth, without a blueprint of truth, is certainly enslaving. You are the end-all, get-all. You live for yourself, you live for your desires, you live for whoever and whatever else that you think is worth living for. But we've been given the word of God. We've been given a new set of eyes. This life is only a drop in the bucket compared to life eternal. How you live and how you honor God makes all the difference. You are set free from living yourself, living for yourself, um, in order that you might live for others. I think last week in the sermon, we kind of got there as well. As a missionary from, from Britain 150 years ago called C.T. Studd, he has a cool quote. It says, only one life will soon be passed, or soon, yeah, only what's done for Christ will last. Let me read that again. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Power of death number two. We're talking about some ways the devil has a power of death. The devil says fear death. Death is scary. We don't like death. What comes next? How do you live without knowing what comes next? There is a fear that, uh, of that because when I think, when it all comes down to I know who I am. I know I'm not as, as good as I portray. I know as not, I'm not as strong as I portray. I know I'm not, I'm not as happy or confident as I portray. Think social media. You put on your best profile, right? But there's something else beyond that that they don't know about. 
And so if you don't know what's after death, it's a very it's enslaving. You're always kind of looking over your shoulder. You're never content to live fully and freely. But ah, to this family, Jesus looks to the cross. Jesus looks you in the eye, and, um, and he says, yes, it's true that you are not good enough. <laughs> I lost my place. Yes, it's true that you are not good enough, but that is what I'm dying for, to save the souls of my brothers and sisters, to bring many sons to glory. I am taking your sins, putting those on my shoulders, and I'm dying in your place. And to that, we can confidently say to the devil, devil, my sins, every single one of them, has been nailed to the cross and forgiven. And devil, he has embarrassed you publicly. Power death number three. The devil says guilt wins. Maybe those first two things didn't get you. Maybe you believe in God, you believe in heaven, you believe in hell. But watch this, the devil's still after you. Here's another way he holds the power of death. He tells you that your guilt will win. Again, we know our thoughts. We know who we are. We know how messed up we are. And it is another power of the devil to hold those things up in front of our eyes and say that's really who we are. God cannot love you, a, a filthy, messed up sinner. But this, family, let me leave you with some lyrics from the, from the hymn, Before the Throne of God. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry, I got someone good to do it. Um, close your eyes for this one, and just kind of meditate on her words. She's going to sing just two verses. When Satan tempts me to despair And tells me of the guilt within Of what I look and see in there I made an end to all my sin Because the sinless Savior died My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. All right, open your eyes. Um, those are three powers of death that on the cross and through resurrection Jesus said, Devil, you are destroyed. You don't hold those powers anymore. All right? You may try, but you don't hold them anymore. Do you guys remember that book, Screw Tape Letters, by that uh, famous storyteller, C.S. Lewis? If you haven't read it, it's, it's essentially about a young apprentice demon, Wormwood. And he's writing letters back and forth to his, his mentor. And the mentor is giving advice how to trick people, how to tempt people how to get them to sin and to die. And the one thing, or, or one thing that I got out of the book was how individually catered those temptations were. That mentor looked at people and he said, I see this, tempt them with that thing. And it's like those powers of death. 
right? For some people, Satan will say, fear death, that's scary. For some people, Satan will say, there's nothing after death. For some people, Satan will say, guilt wins. But although there are a wide variety of temptations, and there are more, obviously, there is but one remedy. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross and rising from the dead three days later. I was um, making Easter pancakes today with a couple of my daughters. And uh, Acadia woke up a little late and she come to, came, stood by me and grabbed my pant leg and she said something. You know, three years old, sometimes you're like, oh, yes, you're right, but I didn't really totally understand her, but I thought it was cool. So I said, say it again. And she said, him is not dead. And she's working on a pronoun. She meant he is not dead. But we have great reason to celebrate today, family. He is risen. He is not dead. And he has destroyed the devil, the one who had the power of death. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for this celebration of who you are and what you did for us. We pray that uh, we just celebrate that and we live in the light of your work. Pray that we look to you for everything. In your name we pray. Amen.